Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're discovering how researchers have used genetic engineering to turn genes into life-saving drugs such as insulin for people with diabetes and monoclonal antibodies that are used to treat autoimmune conditions, cancer and infectious diseases like COVID-19. When you eat, the carbohydrates in your food are broken down into glucose, which travels into your bloodstream. To stop your blood sugar from getting too high, your body releases a hormone called insulin, which encourages cells to remove glucose from your bloodstream, helping you maintain normal blood sugar levels. In people with type 1 diabetes who produce little or none of the hormone insulin, blood sugar levels can become toxically high, causing damage to tissues and organs, and coma or even death in extreme cases. Fortunately, people living with this type of diabetes can control their blood sugar levels by injecting insulin, allowing them to live relatively normal lives. But this wasn't always the case. Rewind the clock around a century back to the early 1900s and the picture was very different. Back then, the only available treatment for type 1 diabetes was a highly controlled, low-calorie, low-carbohydrate diet, which often brought sufferers to the brink of starvation in an attempt to control the disease. As a result, few people with diabetes survived for more than five years after diagnosis. In the early 1920s, Frederick Banting, a physician working at the University of Toronto under Professor John James Rickard MacLeod, knew there had to be a better way. By 1921, the Toronto team had managed to figure out that insulin, or rather the lack of it, lay behind diabetes. So, Banting figured, why not try and get hold of some of this magical hormone and then give it to the people who didn't have enough? First, he had to find a source of insulin, a protein hormone that's made by special cells in the pancreas, known as beta cells, and released into the bloodstream in response to rising blood sugar levels. Banting and his assistant Charles Best began by extracting insulin from healthy dogs and using it to treat diabetic dogs. Evidently, their initial experiments weren't amazingly successful because they ended up killing so many dogs that they eventually ran out and had to start buying them on the black market before moving on to extracting insulin from cows instead. Eventually, Banting and Best perfected their insulin extraction and purification process with help from biochemist James Bertram Collip. And in January 1922, they injected the first human with animal insulin. Their patient was a 14-year-old boy called Leonard Thompson, who was in the hospital with extremely high blood sugar and severe complications from diabetes. The treatment brought Leonard's blood sugar levels down to normal, and he lived another 13 years, before unluckily dying of pneumonia. Soon after, the Eli Lilly Drug Company started large-scale production of animal insulin, making it the first biological drug on the market and saving many lives. McLeod and Banting went on to share the 1923 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their work, splitting their winnings with Collip and Best. Although animal insulin improved the lives of people with diabetes substantially, around 5% of them suffered allergic reactions to the treatment. 
What's more, as the demand for insulin grew, so too did the need for animal pancreases to extract insulin from, specifically the leftover organs of cows and pigs that had been slaughtered for meat. It took around 23,500 animals to make one pound, or around half a kilo of insulin. So, by the 1970s, Eli Lilly was churning through 56 million animal pancreases per year for insulin production and was struggling to meet the demand for the drug. By the mid-late 1970s, following the birth of recombinant DNA technology, an early form of genetic engineering, several different scientists had come up with the idea of using the technique to produce human insulin in bacterial cells. You can learn more about the history of genetic engineering in episode 23 of series 1, GMO, OMG, but it's quite simple. You take the human insulin gene, stitch it into a circle of bacterial DNA known as a plasmid, and put it into bacteria. Then grow up the modified bugs in large vats of broth and wait as they pump out pure human insulin, which you can then purify and give to patients. But there was just one teeny tiny problem. At the time, we didn't know the DNA sequence of the gene coding for insulin, or even which chromosome held the human insulin gene. In fact, all we really knew was the molecular structure of the hormone itself, a protein made of 51 amino acids strung together in two chains, which was figured out by British biochemist and two times Nobel Prize winner Fred Sanger in 1955. Aha! The hunt for synthetic human insulin was led by Herbert Boyer, a biochemist and expert in recombinant DNA from the University of California, San Francisco, who teamed up with two scientists from the City of Hope National Medical Center, Arthur Riggs, a geneticist, and Keiichi Itakura, an organic chemist and expert in chemical DNA synthesis. Together, they decided to work backwards from the structure of the insulin protein to produce a synthetic gene for it, which they could insert into bacteria to make insulin. Although it sounds conceptually straightforward, chemically synthesising DNA was a long and laborious process that involves building a DNA strand one nucleotide or letter at a time until the sequence is complete. And because each amino acid of a protein is encoded by three letters of DNA, they needed to create two perfect sequences of at least 63 and 90 DNA letters in order to build the 21 and 30 amino acid strings that made up the insulin molecule. Rather than leap straight to insulin, Boyer and his team decided to start small by trying to make an artificial gene encoding somatostatin, a simple and easily detectable 14 amino acid peptide that inhibits growth hormone. In 1976, they applied for a grant to chemically synthesise the somatostatin gene and express it in bacteria. Then, if successful, they planned to move on to doing the same process for insulin. Alas, their grant application was rejected, with the reviewers saying that their project was too complex and couldn't possibly be completed in three years. Undeterred, they started working with a business friend. Robert A. Swanson, who was interested in recombinant DNA technologies. Together, Boyer and Swanson founded Genentech, one of the first biotechnology companies. 
With investment from Genentech in hand, the team pressed on with the project, producing insulin in bacteria for the first time in 1979, three years after their grant rejection. They chemically synthesised DNA, creating two separate synthetic genes coding for each of the two insulin amino acid chains, which were made and purified separately and then combined together to produce the full insulin protein. Unfortunately, the initial yields of insulin were tiny, so the team at Genentech had to figure out how to get the bacteria to produce around 50 times more insulin to make the process worthwhile. Eventually, they found a way to hijack powerful control genes to encourage the bacteria to produce large quantities of insulin. The project was then transferred to Eli Lilly for large-scale production. Clinical trials in 1981 proved the safety and effectiveness of this artificial insulin, which they called Humulin. In 1982, it was approved for use in people with diabetes, becoming the first genetically engineered drug and virtually eliminating the problems caused by allergies and impurities in animal insulin. A few years later, after researchers had successfully located and sequenced the actual proper human gene for insulin, production moved from using the synthetic gene produced by Genentech to using the human gene for pro-insulin, a precursor protein that's cut up in the body to make active insulin molecules. There have been further innovations over the years since those early days. For example, scientists have tweaked the structure of the hormone to create rapid-acting insulins that are absorbed directly into the bloodstream, rather than sitting under the skin where they're injected and gradually moving into the blood, as well as long-lasting insulin products that keep working over 24 hours. And there are also innovations like Bluetooth insulin pumps and stick-on continuous blood glucose monitors, all of which help to make it easier for people with diabetes to manage their blood sugar levels. Thanks to advances in diabetes treatments, including synthetic insulins, people with type 1 diabetes can now expect to live for much longer than the typical five years after diagnosis that would have been their lot 100 years ago, with an average life expectancy of around 80 years. However, despite the array of life-saving insulin products that are now available, some people with diabetes still face problems being able to access these treatments because of their astronomically high prices. Insulin prices in the US have tripled between 1990 and 2016, with a single vial of modern insulin often costing as much as $300. This is up to 10 times more than the consumer cost in many other countries and, arguably, completely unacceptable for an essential life-saving treatment. In the UK and many other countries, healthcare systems negotiate the best prices for drugs like insulin. But in the US, insulin producers are free to set their own prices. Medicare, the government healthcare plan, is banned from negotiating prices. What's more, continual improvements to insulin products have allowed drug companies to maintain their patents on older versions of the hormone, preventing the production of generic products that would drive down prices. As a result of the price hikes, some people with diabetes are crowdfunding their medication costs or buying insulin on the black market. 
Another option, especially in pre-pandemic days, was to travel to Canada where drug prices are strictly regulated and the same vial of insulin costs a fraction of the price, $20 instead of $300. Others are cutting costs by rationing their insulin, a practice that can increase the rates of diabetes side effects such as eye problems and kidney disease and has been linked to several deaths. Looking at the situation facing many people living with diabetes in the US right now, I'm sure that Frederick Banting, who refused to put his name on the patent for insulin because it would be unethical for a doctor to profit from a discovery that would save lives, would be turning in his grave right now, along with his co-inventors who sold the patent for $1 because they wanted everyone to be able to afford insulin. After all, what good is a life-saving innovation if it's unfairly priced out of the reach of the people who need it. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Growth hormone is a pretty magical biological substance produced by the pituitary gland, a pea-sized gland at the base of the brain. And it helps you, yep, you guessed it, grow. As a result, people who don't produce enough growth hormone and have severe growth hormone deficiency can be very short. A famous example of growth hormone deficiency was Charles Sherwood Stratton, also known as General Tom Thumb, a circus performer who lived in the 1800s. Despite being a relatively large baby at over 4 kilos, by the age of 21 he was just 89 centimetres tall, shorter than the average three-year-old. By the 1900s, doctors began to understand growth hormone deficiency and started looking for ways to treat the condition. But unfortunately, unlike insulin, extracting growth hormone from animals didn't provide any benefits for people because the structure of animal growth hormone is too different from its human equivalent and the effects of growth hormone are species-specific. So to treat growth hormone deficiency in humans, researchers needed to extract it from humans. By the 1950s, scientists began extracting growth hormone from the pituitary glands of human corpses to treat children with severe growth hormone deficiency. Supplies were obviously limited, but around 27,000 children were treated in this way between 1963 and 1985. But in the mid-1980s, alarm bells began to ring. Several patients in the US who'd been treated with human growth hormone derived from corpses developed Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, a neurological disorder commonly known as CJD. CJD is a fatal condition caused by infectious misfolded proteins called prions. Prions transmit their misfolded shape to normal proteins in the central nervous system, so the number of abnormal proteins increases rapidly. The misfolded proteins disrupt the central nervous system by affecting nerve signalling and damaging neurons, leading to brain damage and ultimately death. 
CJD can be transmitted between people by contact with contaminated brain tissue or spinal fluid that transfers the infectious prions. Unfortunately, when growth hormone was extracted from the pituitary glands of people who had CJD prions and used to treat children with growth hormone deficiency, the disease was passed on too. As a result of the reports, the UK stopped treating people with natural human growth hormone in May 1985. But by March 2000, 34 out of the 1,900 people who were treated with the substance in the UK had died of CJD. And to add to the troubles caused by the treatment, recent research has suggested that the therapy may have also transmitted other faulty proteins that may increase the chances of people developing Alzheimer's disease later in life. In the face of this tragedy, researchers raced to develop a safe, synthetic version of human growth hormone. After their success with insulin, the scientists at Genentech were trying to create recombinant processes for producing more complicated hormones, like human growth hormone, whose biochemical structure was discovered in 1972. But while insulin has 51 amino acids in total, human growth hormone has 191. The scientists at Genentech realised that the gene would be far too large for them to synthesise completely, as they did for insulin. So they synthesised part of the gene directly, letter by letter, but created the other part using cDNA, which is DNA created using the messenger RNA encoding for the protein as a template. The Genentech team succeeded in creating the first recombinant human growth hormone in 1981, which was approved rapidly by the FDA in the wake of the CJD scandal and introduced as a therapy for severe growth hormone deficiency in 1985. While the use of human growth hormone was severely limited before the introduction of the recombinant version in 1985, its development and unlimited availability led to its use in several additional conditions, including in children with chronic kidney disease, Turner syndrome and Prader-Willi syndrome. But it doesn't stop there. Since the introduction of recombinant human growth hormone, this list of indications has grown substantially. It now includes conditions like idiopathic short stature, which means that a person has no underlying health issues, but is less than two standard deviations below the average height for their age. In the UK, that's equivalent to an adult height of less than 5 foot 3 for men and 4 foot 10 for women. The definition seems sketchy given that thanks to the distribution of heights in the population, around 2% of people will always be right down the lower end of this scale. In recent years, there has been some controversy about the widespread use of human growth hormone and whether simply being short, with no underlying medical conditions, is a disease that needs curing with expensive treatment like human growth hormone, especially as it's children being treated. Recent analyses have also suggested that increases in height from human growth hormone are modest, with scientists suggesting that the benefits are not worth the frequent injections or the price tag of approximately $52,000 per inch of extra height. Although human growth hormone is responsible for growth in children, it also helps maintain tissues and organs in adults. However, as we reach middle age, the amount of human growth hormone we produce begins to drop. 
This drop has led some people to wonder whether maintaining high levels of human growth hormone in adulthood might help reduce some of the effects of ageing, like decreased bone and muscle mass. As a result of these theories, recombinant human growth hormone has been a popular but illegal performance-enhancing drug since the 1980s. Studies have shown that human growth hormone can increase lean mass and reduce body fat, but it also comes with side effects, including an increased risk of diabetes, joint pain, muscle pain, fluid retention and high blood pressure. What's more, clinical trials have failed to show that human growth hormone increases athletic performance. Even so, the successes of somatostatin, insulin and human growth hormone jump-started the biotechnology industry, and the list of recombinant protein therapies has continued to grow in the decades since. Treatments approved by the FDA now include follicle-stimulating hormone, a female sex hormone that was once isolated from urine, clotting factors that were once harvested from blood, and several more. We've come a long way from the early days of genetic engineering and synthetic hormones in the 1980s, and even further from Banting and Best's early experiments a century ago. The era of biological drugs is well and truly here to stay. Replacing missing or faulty human hormones with their recombinant equivalents is a relatively straightforward way to treat disease. But by the mid-1980s, scientists were beginning to think about how they could exploit a more mysterious and unpredictable class of human proteins. Antibodies. Antibodies are small proteins produced by B cells, which form part of our immune systems. They recognise and bind to foreign material like viruses, bacteria, toxins, and even rogue cells within our own bodies. Each antibody consists of four protein chains arranged in a Y shape. They have constant regions and variable regions of around 110 to 130 amino acids on the arms of the Y that allow the antibody to bind to different targets, or antigens. These arms are highly specific, so each antibody only binds to one specific antigen. In theory, by varying the structure of the arms, antibodies can bind to almost any substance or antigen in the body or beyond, making them incredibly attractive for treating disease. For example, antibodies could bind to cancer cells and flag them to the immune system, or block cell growth. Antibodies can block the aberrant immune responses that lie behind autoimmune conditions like multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis. And they can also neutralise infectious agents like viruses, including the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Our understanding of antibodies and their role in immunity began back in the late 1800s, when two scientists called Bering and Kitasato did experiments showing that immunity to tetanus and diphtheria toxins could be transferred between animals by extracting blood from an immunised animal, removing the cells from the blood so only a clear fluid called serum remained, and then injecting this into a non-immunised animal. Their research showed that a substance in this blood serum was able to prevent and treat infections, and it didn't rely on the presence of cells to do so. 
an idea that ran against the mainstream theory at the time that cells provided immunity. They called this healing serum an antitoxin, though by 1891 the protective molecules within it were renamed antibodies. Bering began producing antibodies from animals and using them to treat tetanus and diphtheria in humans, with successful clinical trials in 1892. A trial using antitoxin from animals to treat diphtheria in children halved the disease's mortality rate, with the administration of the substance in the first two days of the disease almost guaranteeing recovery. They began using horses to produce antitoxin in larger quantities, and by the early 1900s, stables around the world were set up to produce treatments for diphtheria and tetanus. Unfortunately, in 1901, 13 children from Missouri died after receiving diphtheria antitoxin from a horse that was itself sick with tetanus. This tragedy led to the regulation of biological products in the US and the founding of the FDA. During the early 1900s, serum therapy using blood from immune animals was expanded to include treatments for measles, polio and a range of bacterial infections. When the flu pandemic hit in 1918, serum from recovered patients was used to treat sick ones. By 1952, scientists had isolated antibodies from human blood and began investigating how they could be used to treat disease. Soon, we knew all about the structure and function of antibodies, but a huge mystery still remained. How do we generate so many different antibodies that can recognise almost any antigen? One scientist, an Argentinian biochemist called Cesar Milstein, who was working at the University of Cambridge, began a mission to find out. Milstein had a theory that alterations occurring within the genetic code of the B cells producing the antibodies were responsible for creating antibody diversity, and he set about doing experiments to try and find out if he was right. His initial experiments focused on growing antibody-producing myeloma cells and looking for mutations in the genes responsible for antibody production. But this approach was laborious and not very effective. After joining forces with George Kurler, a German immunologist who moved to Cambridge to work as Milstein's postdoc, they moved on to a different tactic. Instead of looking for gene mutations, they would grow cells that produced one antibody with very high specificity, and then look for changes in the specificity of the antibody as a way of detecting new mutations. But they had a problem. The immune antibody-producing cells they were using came from a type of immune cell cancer known as myeloma. But nobody knew what their antibodies bound to. In fact, no one had been able to produce cell lines that made a specific antibody against a known target or antigen. They just couldn't get a line off the shelf that did what they needed. So they were forced to create one. Milstein and Kurler decided to try fusing B-cells from the spleen of a mouse that was immunised against a particular antigen with a mouse myeloma cell, hoping to combine the antibody-producing ability of the B-cell with the immortality of the myeloma cell. By 1975, Kurler had created these hybrid cells, known as hybridomas, and showed that they produced large amounts of antibodies specific to their chosen antigen. 
a molecule found on sheep blood cells. Importantly, while trying to create an immortal antibody-producing cell line for their experiments, Milstein and Kurler had inadvertently created a way of making an immortal cell line capable of producing an endless supply of identical antibodies with known specificity. So, in theory, by immunising a mouse with any antigen of your choice, from any animal or cell, you should be able to fish out immortal B cells that churn out antibodies against that target, so-called monoclonal antibodies, which could be grown indefinitely in the lab. When they presented their results at a meeting, one of their fellow scientists asked whether it would now be possible to make these monoclonal antibodies against anything, including, as he put it, against my mother-in-law. <laughs> Realising that their cells had many more potential applications than their original intended purpose, with benefits for both industry and medicine, Milstein shelved the antibody diversity problem for several years and worked on demonstrating the practical importance of monoclonal antibodies. He, Kurler, and Danish immunologist Niels Kajerne shared the Nobel Prize for their work on the immune system and the production of monoclonal antibodies in 1984. Now armed with tools that allowed them to make specific antibodies, scientists began developing therapies using monoclonal antibodies. The first to be approved in 1984 was Muronimab CD3, a mouse antibody against a protein expressed by T-cells, which could prevent organ rejection in patients who'd received a kidney transplant. Unfortunately, early monoclonal antibodies lacked clinical and commercial success. Part of the problem with monoclonal antibodies created with hybridoma technologies was that the antibodies produced were mouse antibodies, which have different structures to human antibodies. So, although they were highly specific to the desired antigen, they could trigger immune responses against the antibody therapies themselves in humans, especially when used over a long period of time. Immune responses can cause rapid destruction of antibodies in the body, rendering them useless as a therapy. To combat this problem, researchers began looking for ways to transform mouse antibodies into something that more closely resembled the human version by combining the highly specific target recognition bits of the mouse antibodies with more generic sections of human antibodies. By the 1990s, Milstein and Kurler's hybridoma technology had been overhauled to produce antibodies that were much more compatible with the human immune system and contained only small sections of mouse antibody structure required for specific antigen binding. The second antibody therapy to be approved didn't appear until 1994. Abciximab combined sections of mouse and human antibodies and was designed to prevent blood clots. Although this humanisation reduced the chances that a patient's immune system would react to the antibodies themselves, there was still potential for immune reactions to the antibody therapies. What's more, antibody humanisation is complex and the process can affect the specificities of the antibodies produced. But Gregory Winter, a molecular biologist at the MRC in Cambridge, wanted to go further still. He wanted to create fully human antibodies. He did this using a technique called phage display, which was invented by George Smith a few years earlier, and allowed him to put human antibody genes into viruses called phages, which then display the antibody on their surface. 
Using rounds of mutagenesis and screening to allow directed evolution, Winter generated multitudes of human antibodies, which he could then screen for the best fit with his antigen, coming up with a technique that allowed him to use directed evolution to create fully human antibodies for any antigen he wanted. Smith and Winter both took shares in the 2018 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work on phage display and directed evolution of human antibodies. The first fully human monoclonal antibody, Humira, was approved in 2002 for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and quickly became a best-selling blockbuster drug. Thanks to advances in genetic engineering and gene editing technologies like CRISPR, Most new antibodies are discovered using transgenic animals, often a mouse, whose genome has been modified so that their native antibody production genes are deactivated, with human antibody genes inserted instead. As a result, when the animal is exposed to an antigen, they produce human antibodies, which can be discovered using B-cell screening, phage display or hybridoma technology. Antibody therapy is one of the fastest growing areas of biotechnology. To date, 570 antibody therapies have entered clinical trials, and 79 have been approved by the FDA, providing targeted therapies for diseases including cancer, autoimmune conditions, metabolic and infectious diseases. Monoclonal antibodies have even been trialled against COVID-19, most famously the monoclonal antibody cocktail made by Regeneron, which was used to treat former US President Trump. But while monoclonal antibodies do show promise for treating infectious diseases, their specificity can be their downfall, and there are concerns that they don't work against virus variants. Even so, from a bloody start back in the 1800s to an estimated $138.6 billion market by 2024, monoclonal antibody therapy is definitely one of the most promising areas of medicine, both now and in the future. Watch this space. The advent of the revolutionary gene editing technology CRISPR has added a new dimension to drug discovery, with new and exciting ways to fix genetic diseases and identify therapeutic targets. For more on CRISPR and its impact on drug discovery, listen to our previous episodes, 407, A Brief History of CRISPR, and 408, Making Better Medicines. But despite the technological advances brought by CRISPR, one major bottleneck remains in drug discovery. It's the same bottleneck the scientists at Genentech encountered nearly three decades ago, DNA synthesis. The ability to design genetic sequences and synthesize them precisely, quickly, and at scale would enable us to create libraries of precisely designed antibodies, proteins, and nucleic acid drugs without the hassle of finding related molecules in nature and coaxing them into the structures and functions that we need to treat disease. While DNA sequencing has moved forward at lightning speed over the past few decades, and we can now sequence DNA in hours for a few hundred dollars, DNA synthesis techniques have not seen equivalent advances. 
if researchers want to synthesize DNA in the laboratory, they're still stuck with a slightly more up-to-date version of the laborious process that's been used since the 1980s, carefully adding one nucleotide at a time using a method called phosphoramidite synthesis. Several companies are now working on chip-based technologies that promise quick, accurate DNA synthesis in small user-friendly desktop devices. Effectively, DNA printers that take the genetic code you want from letters typed into a computer into molecular reality. The devices create DNA strands in multiple parallel micro-reactions on silicon chips, using the same basic process of adding each nucleotide step by step. But they create DNA strands in thousands of multiple, precisely controlled parallel reactions in pixels or virtual wells that act as independent DNA synthesis sites. The result is a highly automated, high-yield and accurate process that can create long strands of DNA on demand. New DNA synthesis technologies are now promising to open up biological engineering and unleash a new era of drug discovery, where we can rapidly produce and screen libraries of potential new synthetic drugs, including antibodies, hormones, enzymes, proteins, or DNA-based therapies. Perhaps the most obvious applications, given the current coronavirus pandemic, could be vaccines for infectious diseases, with DNA printers capable of producing genetic codes for sections of viruses or other pathogens that can be incorporated into vaccines to generate an immune response. One company is pursuing the idea of providing vaccine printers in doctor's surgeries or hospitals, which could be invaluable in future pandemics. Researchers are also trying to use the printers to create personalised cancer vaccines, which harness the power of a patient's own immune system in their fight against cancer. Currently, DNA synthesis is often limited to sequences of around 200 to 300 DNA letters in length, much shorter than most genes. But as technologies advance and the size of DNA sequences that we can produce continues to increase, we can begin to think about building complete genes or even whole genomes and designer cells to open up new avenues in drug design, including creating precisely engineered cells, gene therapies and even entirely new microorganisms designed to fight disease, a concept known as bugs as drugs. Precision DNA printing could also open the door for more unusual DNA therapies created through DNA origami, folding strands of synthetic DNA into tiny nanoparticles with powerful properties. One example, so-called spherical nucleic acids, look a bit like tiny pom-poms, with strands of DNA coming out of the centre, and are being developed to treat diseases like skin and brain cancer. Once we have complete control over the code of life, and we can manipulate, print and edit it with ease, the possibilities are almost endless. That's all for now. Thanks to Emily Norvang for her sterling work researching and writing this episode. We'll be back next time finding out how scientists are searching for the genes involved in chronic pain and MECFS, working hand-in-hand with people affected by these often frustrating and life-limiting conditions. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com.
You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Emily Norvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.